Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. On January 20th, 2021, Amanda Gorman took the world by storm. Everyone tuned in that day to see Joseph Biden be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. And afterwards, all everyone could talk about is the young 22-year-old national youth poet laureate. We talked a little bit, Emily and Denise, last week about Amanda Gorman as we uh, celebrated the beginning of Black History Month and just to renew the challenge they gave everyone to uh, try to find a biography or, or autobiography of an African-American and, and learn about their lives, someone who's who's left a, an imprint on American history, and there's so many. Let's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Frederick Douglass, and there's a new biography by David Blythe on Frederick Douglass, so I'm going to dig into that and encourage you to find something you can dig into as well. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about Amanda Gorman. Amanda grew up raised by a single mom in the Watts area of L.A. Her mom was a sixth-grade English teacher, and Amanda had several challenges. She had an auditory processing disorder. She also had a speech impairment, if you can believe it. She said that she went through lots of speech therapy and particularly practiced on uh, the Hamilton song, Aaron Burr, Sir, which is a, a great tune. She never saw these challenges as impediments. She saw them as gifts that could strengthen her resolve to make her a better person and to use her words in a more powerful way. And we saw that on full display uh, that day at the inauguration. Uh, Amanda Norman started, uh, Gorman started to trend on social media. Uh, her two books went to number one and two on, on the Amazon bestseller list. She performed uh, for the Super Bowl, and then this past week she was on the cover of Time magazine. Why did this young woman, this gifted young woman, take the world by storm? Well, she's gifted. She was speaking words of hope in a time of hopelessness. But I think for me, there's a there's a greater reason. I think that day, in that moment, when we were watching her perform her piece, we were reminded of the power of words. Indeed, uh, a word can change everything. This week, we're launching a 10-week series. That's right, a 10-week series. It'll carry us all the way through Lent, even past Easter a few weeks, on the Gospel of John. And we're going to uh, walk through John by looking at images or metaphors that John uses for Jesus. Uh, to understand who Jesus is, we can't see him through one image or metaphor. We need a kaleidoscope of images and metaphors. So each week, we will look at a different one that John uses uh, in an effort to, to get to know Jesus better and more accurately. Uh, we, will, we will also um, dive in and and explore the nuances of John and 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 how John was put together, who authored John, all those kind of things. The last week of the series, we have a New Testament scholar, Dr. Beth Stovall. She's been writing a commentary on the Gospel of John, and I'm super excited to, to interview John. But before we get, we'll get really deep into that stuff on last week, but I want to give you a general context for John before we jump into the first image or metaphor. 
As many of you may know, the New Testament starts with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're each eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of the same stories, and they're called the synoptic Gospels. They're different. They have different uh, goals in mind, but they share a lot of the same material. John stands apart. John is unique. John is trying to do something that no one else is doing. The early church uh, followers of Christ had different winged animals that would symbolize each of the Gospel writers, and John was the eagle because John flies all the way, way higher than anyone else in, in how he's describing who Jesus is. Uh, John, uh, who wrote John is a good question. As we open the book, you might say, well, it's the gospel of John, but nowhere in the gospel does John declare himself to be the author. Uh, no author is named. Uh, five times the author refers to himself as the beloved disciple. So we have to ask, who might this beloved disciple be? And uh, scholars have come up with a lot of different choices. But still, the best option is John, the son of Zebedee. We're told that John, who wrote this gospel, or the beloved disciple, was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. And, and John, son of Zebedee, was probably the youngest disciple and was certainly an eyewitness uh, to the life of Jesus. It's probable uh, that John wrote his gospel around the area of Ephesus in the late 60s, although he could have written it later than that. Tradition holds that John lived to be very old. What is the purpose of John's gospel? We don't have to guess that. John tells us, if we, if we look at John 20, 31, and you can turn along with me or I'll read it to you. He says this, he's very clear. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or it could be translated that you may continue to believe. So everything that we're going to go through, all 10 weeks, all these images and metaphors of Jesus as we journey with Jesus all the way to Easter and beyond, John's compiling these together and putting these together so that we might believe and find life in his name. If you're joining us today and you don't know where you stand, you don't know what you think about Jesus, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. One, thank you for joining us. There's something for you in this gospel. John will be drawing you in and challenging you to think about Jesus in a new and provocative way. Do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? And for those of us who do believe already, there's something for us here because John's trying to draw us into deeper belief. This word belief is the Greek word pistis, and it, there's a range of meanings. Uh, it's usually translated faith in our Bibles or believe. And we automatically in our Western mindset think mental assent. And there's an element of mental assent in pistis, but almost always there's way more. Almost always there's an embodiment, the mental assent, the way our minds are changed, our belief turns into action. Some will translate the word allegiance. I prefer trust. John's not just trying to change our minds with his gospel. He's trying to deepen our trust in Jesus so that we will live differently. And that goes for you wherever you're at on the spiritual journey. Uh, John may have been one of the last eyewitnesses to who Jesus was. And at this point, whether it's the 60s or the 70s that he's writing, there was all kinds of different accounts of Jesus and, and, and heretics cropping up and people saying things that weren't true about him. John is one of the last eyewitnesses writing this gospel and putting it together so we may clearly know uh, who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. So let's dive into our first metaphor of nine of the life of Jesus, and that's Jesus as word. And Mercedes is gonna be reading our scripture reading for us. Take it away, Mercedes. Today's scripture reading comes from John 1, one through five. In the beginning was the word, 
and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Thanks, Mercedes. Appreciate that. Uh, this passage is part of the larger prologue to the Gospel of John. John's the only gospel that has a prologue. It's verses 1 through 14. Go ahead. You can open your Bibles and look yourself. That's the prologue. What is a prologue? You might say, well, if you're a Star Wars fan or you're familiar with it, you remember back to the first Star Wars movie. In, in, in this, in, it opens, I remember sitting in the cinema as a kid, and it says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That came across your screen. And then that text just kind of scrolls out across all the stories, and it's telling you the backstory. It's setting the stage for the movie that's to come. That's what a prologue is. In verses 1 through 14 here, this is what John's doing. He's setting the stage for what he's about to tell us about Jesus. And in this prologue, in the setting of the stage, he gives us this first metaphor to help us better understand who Jesus is. John is going to tell us a lot in the prologue. He'll set a clear foundation for who he's claiming Jesus to be. And also within these 14 verses, he seeds the ground with a lot of the things that he'll unpack uh, throughout his gospel. Many scholars think this prologue was actually an early church hymn. Uh, if you look at the Greek, it can be broken down into four stanzas. It's likely the early followers of Jesus sang this prologue in their gatherings. We know it was very important to them. We found archaeological evidence where they'll have written out the prologue, uh, uh, put it in a little piece of paper and put it in a necklace that they would carry around. The early church also read this prologue over those who were sick and over those who were newly uh, baptized. John begins with these words, in the beginning, and if you know anything about scripture, and it's okay if you don't, but if you do, that probably, it's a hyperlink where, you know, hyperlink, you click on it, it takes you somewhere else. The hyperlink is back to Genesis 1-1, the first words of the bigger story of scripture, and, and it begins in the beginning God. So John is trying to take our minds and our hearts back to Genesis 1, and this word, uh, in the beginning was the word, this is the Greek word logos. So put a pin in both of those things, we'll come back to them in just a second and dive more deeply into it. But if you're looking at, at what Mercedes read, verses 1 through 5, what does John tell us right out of the gate about the word? He tells us the word was there in the very beginning, the word was with God, the word was God, the word created all things, and from this word comes life and light. What does it tell us, what do those things tell us about Jesus? What at all does this have to do with Jesus? What has everything to do with Jesus? Because John clearly connects the identity of the word with the person of Jesus. If you look at verses, uh, or verse 14, 114, near the end of the prologue, it says this, the word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John's like, I've seen the Logos. I know the Logos. And then in verse 17, John names the Logos as Jesus, Jesus as word. This is our first metaphor. What in the world does this mean? It's such a weird phrase. So we started with a tough one. Uh, again, let's go back to this Greek word, logos. Jesus is the logos. So we have to look at everything in the context of when it was written. This was a, a very popular word, both in the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture, but also in the Hebrew Jewish culture. 
So we have to say, well, which one is John leaning into? Which context does he want us to understand? I feel pretty strongly, John, because of the first three words in the beginning, John's pointing to the Jewish Hebrew context of this word. In the, the Hebrew language, uh, this idea of logos, uh, there, there's power behind the logos, and the logos is a attached to the person who speaks forth the Logos, and yet the Logos has an identity also of its own. We can understand this. Uh, if, if you get a, a text or an email from uh, your spouse or your girlfriend, boyfriend, your significant other, and in that text or email, they're telling you how awesome you are and they're telling you how much they love you. That's meaningful because that word, that spoken word, is connected to the person who spoke it. If we get the same message from someone we don't know at all, it's just creepy. So there's, there's power. Our words are connected to the person who speaks them, and yet also our words have a life of their own. In the Old Testament, this word logos is most often used within a phrase, and it, you may, it may be familiar to your ears. The word of the Lord, you'll see this often in the Old Testament. The word of the word, Lord, the logos of the Lord. And so when we see this, what are some attributes of it? Well, attributes are very similar to what we see in John 1. Uh, the word of the Lord gives life, it heals, it provides light, and we're told the word of the Lord never uh, goes out empty or goes out void. It always accomplishes what it was meaning to accomplish. But more than anything, when we look in the Old Testament, we look at this Hebrew-Jewish context, especially from Genesis 1. And remember, John's hyperlinking us to Genesis 1. He wants to focus us immediately back to Genesis 1 to understand this concept. Uh, Logos is a creative force. Uh, there's a creativity about Logos. So even if you're unfamiliar with Genesis 1, you don't even have to turn there. You probably briefly know the story. In the beginning, God, and then what does God start to do immediately? He starts to do Logos work. He speaks. And, and again and again, in Genesis 1, we have this phrase in Hebrew, and God said, and God said, and God said. And every time it says, and God said, something is being created. Uh, oceans and planets and, and land and trees and flowers and birds and fish and wildlife and you and me. There's a creative force and entity behind this Logos. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the Logos of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Logos creates. Um, uh, um, the big reveal here that John's giving us, and the, the big reveal that would have, frankly, shocked his Jewish readers, is that the Logos of the Lord has become personified. In John's terminology, it's, it's literally taken on flesh. And this would have been staggering to John's Jewish audience and his Greek and his Roman audience. In that time, there was a dualism. There was a dichotomy between the material world and the spiritual world, almost in all thought systems. And constantly, you're trying to escape the material and get freed from your body and ascend to become a god. It's that kind of language and idea that just permeated the first century. This flips it all. In this instance, the God, the maker of heaven and earth, has descended to put on flesh. It would have, it would have frankly, just hurt their minds. John's also declaring in, in, in John 1, and this is what I want to focus our hearts on with this metaphor, that Jesus is here as the Logos, as the word, creating again. In Genesis 1, we're told there was 
darkness over the surface of the deep. That's the context of God's creative energy, of the creative energy of the Logos in Genesis 1. And then what does God throw into the darkness with his words? Light. There was light. He spoke and there was light. And then here we come back to John 1. What is Jesus doing to create anew? In, because of sin, darkness and death have re-entered the world. The, God, the world that God created in Genesis 1 has been thrown asunder. It's been wrecked by sin. So the world is a again, permeated by darkness and death, but here comes Jesus, the Logos of God, creating anew, bringing light once again into the darkness. John 1 and and Genesis 1 fit like this, and they're meant to. So here it is. All that aside, maybe that's interesting, maybe it's not. Here's what John wants us to understand with this first metaphor, Jesus as word, that Jesus is God creating anew. Jesus is God creating anew. Let's break that down. First of all, Jesus is God. This is something that will begin right here from the get-go. John doesn't miss a beat. He starts in his prologue telling us demonstrably that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, back to that verse I read earlier, that the word, God, logos, put on flesh and dwelt among us. This uh, verb dwelt among us in some older translations is translated tabernacled among us. And if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, uh, the, the Jewish people built a tabernacle and then a temple. We'll talk about that a lot next week. And God inhabited that space with his, with his presence. So here John's saying, now God is inhabiting flesh. God is tabernacling among us. So Jesus is God. John's unequivocally clear on this. And throughout his gospel, he highlights that again and again and again, it, it almost gets uncomfortable. And so if you're coming from a place where you're not sure what you think about Jesus, and if you say you followed him for a long time, we have to be confronted with this reality. You can't get through a serious study of the, the Gospel of John and come away with the idea, ah, Jesus was just a good dude. Jesus was just a good dude that had some good human wisdom. I'll take a little bit here and take a little bit. No, John does not leave that option. Either Jesus is God or Jesus is some kind of lying narcissistic maniac. Those are kind of the two choices you're left with. And John pounds that home again and again, and we must reckon with that. But if Jesus is God, then the inverse is true, that God is like Jesus. I think that we have a lot of misconstrued mental images of God, and our mental images of God are probably the most important thing about us. They totally direct our faith life, how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, and how we think about God. I think we often caricature God. A caricature, if you ever had one done uh, it's, or, or seen them, I'm sure you have, it's you take one feature of a person that might be exaggerated a little bit and they over-exaggerate it that much more. So a caricature of, of honest Abe, Abraham Lincoln is coming up and Oh, look at the size of those ears, right? It, Abraham Lincoln, if you look back at, at depictions of Lincoln, he probably had a little bit bigger ears, but in this caricature, they're mammoth. They, they take over his face. That's a caricature, and this is what we do with God. We take one aspect of God, maybe something we've grown up being told that is true about God, or maybe something we want to be true about God, and we exaggerate it. We, 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 we focus so much on his justice at the expense of his mercy, or so much on God's mercy at the expense of his justice, and then we have these distorted mental images of God, and they wreak havoc in our life. Here's what is true. If Jesus is God, then God is like Jesus. If we want to know who God is, we just look at who Jesus was, how he lived, what he valued, how he treated people, and ultimately what he did on the cross. 
And John tells us that in the very, uh, one of the very last verses of his prologue. And no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. John's essentially saying, you want to know who God is? Just look at Jesus. Jesus, in another verse in Scripture, is the exact representation of God. If Jesus is God, God is like Jesus. So in this series, it's called uh, Encountering Jesus. That's the name of the series. We want you to encounter Jesus, but at a deeper level, we want you to encounter God. We want to kind of clear the decks of all the misnomers we may have about God, and all of us have them, all of us, and come afresh to encounter God through Jesus. Do we want to know who God's like? Look at Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Uh, Not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is creating anew. Uh, When I uh, get in God's presence, enter God's presence one day, um, I don't know what that'll be like. I don't know what that reality will be like. I hope there's maybe like a DVD library, and we can go back and watch things that happen, and however that might be like, I hope there's a DVD of creation. I've long, since I was a kid, just wondered what that was like. God speaking forth all these things and them just coming to life, it, it, it captivates my heart, boggles my mind. I'd love to see it if that's possible. Uh, and what was that like? John's kind of inviting us to realize that when we, when we think about Jesus here in John 1. C.S. Lewis uh, gives that a shot. In his book, The Magician, the Magician's Nephew, it's from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I won't set too much context here other than Aslan the lion is the personification of Jesus. And in this scene, uh, some of the kids uh, get the opportunity to witness what it was like for Aslan, Jesus, to be there in the beginning and create. Now, I'm going to read. This is a, a little bit longer reading. And so I want this to enter your mind and heart. I want it to captivate you, hopefully. So if you want to close your eyes as I read, you can. If you want to keep your eyes open, there will be a painting that comes up uh, as visual stimulus for for you to think through what I'm going to read. It's called Aslan's uh, Song uh, by Katie Elise. So here we go. Sit back, take this in, meditate on this. What would this have been like? In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he, he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful, he could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it. But far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single star constellations and planets brighter and bigger than any in our world. If you had seen it and heard it, you would have felt quite certain that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave, 
In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. When you listened to a song, you heard the things he was making up. And when you looked around you, you saw them. The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees. Far overhead, from beyond the veil of blue sky, the song the stars sang again. Then there came a swift flash like fire, either from the sky or from the lion itself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies. And the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, and speak. I hope that was helpful just, just to give us a taste. I don't know what it was like. I think Lewis did a great job trying to, to bring that to our minds and our hearts in a captivating way. Jesus was there. That's what John's telling us. Jesus was there creating anew the logos of God. And then sin happened and darkness and death re-entered. So Jesus comes in the flesh, the logos of God, creating anew and again, spreading light and life into darkness and death once again. And that work of creating anew starts with you, starts with me and my ramshackle, broken down heart. Jesus enters and begins to create anew. And John is going to focus on that throughout his gospel. John mentions it in, in the prologue, verses, 11, or verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. So Jesus comes in through the power of the cross and the resurrection and begins to create anew in my heart and your heart, setting things right into the darkness and death of our hearts. He brings life and light. And then that work of creating anew spreads out in and through us uh, to the world around us. So Jesus is God creating anew. If we follow Jesus, which I hope we do, and I'm, I'm challenging to, then we simply put our people of the new creation. Uh, Ron Finley, he's called the Gangsta Gardener. And uh, back, I think, around 2010, he lived in L.A., uh, in, in, in a tough spot in L.A., in a, in a place that was called a food desert. And there's many of these around our country. And a food desert is where you have to go for miles to find anything fresh. And Ron, one day, uh, he liked to garden, and he looked out, and he saw a vacant kind of lot section in front of his house. I think it was owned by the city. And there's many of these throughout L.A., and he thought, huh, I might as well plant something there in that barren wasteland. So he plant, planted this mar marvelous garden. I think you'll see a picture come up. And not only that, he invited any and all neighbors around to come by and, and pick the produce as it, as it came to fruit. And then he began to spread this idea. Uh, a couple years after that, he started what's called the Ron Finley Project. And it, the, the goal of the Ron Finley Project is throughout L.A., to uh, transform food deserts into food forced through community gardens. So any vacant lot, any place, they start to build uh, and plant gardens to bear fruit uh, for the neighborhood. He would bring in shipping containers. He'd find old abandoned pools. Like there, there's some pictures coming up. And they'd plant these magnificent gardens. Ron gave a, a TED Talk uh, a number of years ago that was watched by millions of people. I encourage you to check it out. But in it, he calls what he's doing guerrilla gardening coming into the barren wasteland and bringing life. I love the story. And, and when I heard it, I was thinking, Jesus, Jesus is, is, is the first guerrilla gardener. And those of us who follow Jesus, 
He's calling us to be guerrilla gardeners in his name. Jesus comes into barren wastelands, places of darkness and death, and Jesus, through his transforming power, creates anew, and he's calling those of us who follow him through his transformative power to also be guerrilla gardeners, to also create anew. In one of his little letters that he writes after his gospel, John says it like this, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. But anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. And that's what John says in this prologue. Uh, Jesus brings life and light, and through his church and through us, those of us who follow him, brings life and light and is created anew. And Jesus promises us this time, unlike the first creation, this time the darkness will not overcome it. There's our first metaphor, Jesus as word, Jesus as logos. And as we said at the top, watch out, because a word can change everything. I want us to go back to Amanda Gorman, uh, a master of words. And I want to end uh, with the conclusion of, of that spoken word piece or piece of poetry uh, she performed that day at the inauguration. I believe it's called The Hill We Climb. And as I read back through it, one, I was like, this young woman's preaching. And as I read this final portion, I'm like, this young woman's encouraging us to rise up once again and be guerrilla gardeners. Once again, because we follow Jesus who is the word, Jesus is who creating anew, that we rise up and we bring life and light to the barren wastelands of our world in his name. And the darkness will not overcome it. So let's end with Amanda's words. We will rebuild, Build, reconcile, reconcile, and recover. And recover in every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it.